All right. Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, as usual, on Tuesdays with me is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? It's going well. Thank you, Bradley. So we, we, you already referenced last week's recording on, 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 uh, on the Thursday episode where we didn't have the sort of audio quality anywhere near where it's supposed to be. Um, and we're going to sort of continue that conversation a little bit today. But, but with better audio this but time. With, with better audio. We're here like in, so. in Bradley's office with like his lots excellent of, Lots of equipment now. Yeah, you should see how professional this looks. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, but I do want to start. We, we talked a lot about Biden last week, and you had this sort of terrific riff about, about um, how he could blow Christmas and why it was so important for him not to do that. Um, it's maybe looking a little better so, this yeah, week. I was, I was thinking about this a little bit. So for, for those of you who were frustrated by the recording quality last week and, and hung up, which I was one of those people, by the way, um, <laughs> I, the, the point is, you know, given all of the supply chain issues, given the shipping delays at the Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach and others, um, given sort of the, the increased consumer demand because of COVID and everything else, the risk is that Americans will not get their Christmas presents on time. Uh, Jen Paskey, the White House press secretary, I think compounded the problem by then joking about the tragedy of the treadmill, uh, which <laughs> sort of just made them seem like smug, elite, beltway types. Right. Um, but um, but the point of the of the conversation last week was while Biden, you know, may have think may think he took a hit politically because of Afghanistan or the border, that's nothing compared to people not being able to get their gifts. And the Republicans are doing a very good job laying the groundwork to place the blame um, at Biden, at Buttigieg, who's Secretary of Transportation. But I, I wanted to pivot a little bit because what we're thinking about is, okay, I, you know, it sounds like they made more progress this weekend on the spending bill. It sounds like there's a chance that the infrastructure bill will actually be voted on. This week, which means that there'll then be a kind of conceptual f- agreement on the framework of the spending bill as well. So let's assume that both of those things are going to happen. And at the same time, let's assume people's Christmas gifts are, are significantly delayed. Okay. Right? So oh, here, oh, they are delayed. Yeah. Okay. Let's just for sake of this okay. conversation. Okay. So politically, not that these two things are trade-offs, but I think you're worse off than you started. Right. I think that ultimately people will punish you far more. Wait, worse off than you started when you started being president or started where? Being president or okay. just, just if the, the trade, the political downside of people not being able to get Christmas gifts significantly right. outweighs the political upside of passing a spending bill and an infrastructure bill. Really? Sure. Because these are bills that are may make a really big difference in people's lives, but they're very intangible, especially at the beginning. Right, right. No one's right. going to feel anything from them for a long time. It's not even like a tax cut where you get some sort of rebate check or something like right. that. So that got me thinking a little more around, okay, if you're Joe Biden, what's the point here, right? And one argument is the point is what it always is, which is to stay in office and hold power, and that's clearly how the Democratic Party sees it. And, and you could argue that even more so the point right now is, heightened because it's to prevent Trump from coming back. Well, and you have the, 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 the sort of looming midterms. I mean, it, it's interesting how many bad political decisions get made right around yeah. this time of year. But, but, um, but let's let's say that if you're Joe Biden, he's what, 78? 78. Yeah. And you just say, like, I don't even know if I'm going to be around by the next term. And even if I am. Do you think he thinks that way? Someone thinks I, I'm not going to be around by the next I, term? I guess here's what I don't know. I, you know, I don't know Joe Biden, so I, I don't know how he's thinking about it. But I think he could be thinking about it and saying, this is the culmination of my life's work, this presidency. Right. Right. And if he truly strongly believes in the underlying provisions in the spending bill, the child care tax credit, the hunger stuff, the climate stuff, things that truly could be transformational in the way that our society functions, 
he may just say, look, I just want to get a governing accomplishment done, and I don't really care what the politics are. And I know we're going to lose the midterms. I may not be in a position to run for in a couple of years. Harris may not either. We'll be able to be, do it. She'll, she'll be in a position to run, but not successfully. Um, but I don't care. I can help millions and millions and millions of people by doing these things. And that's all that really matters. And it just gets back to that broader question of the job of governing and the job of running for office are, are in many ways two separate jobs. Like when I was in Illinois and, and worked for Rod Blagojevich, Rod had both an insane and yet in some ways incredibly logical mindset, which was he would literally say, I did my job, meaning I won the election. Right. I'll be back in a couple of years to do it again. <laughs> you guys do yours. And on one hand, that's fucking crazy. Right. But on the other hand, it's not, right? Because people run for office for the specific purpose of sort of needing the validation and credibility that comes with it. And that is very different from then governing and doing things that actually make you more unpopular. Right, right. But it, but it's interesting because you also work for Chuck Schumer. Now, Chuck seemed to really, like, be kind of running for re-election all the time, yeah, right? Yeah, he's the same way as Blagojevich. He, he, well, that, he wasn't, he, though, because he... I mean, he's not because he works like an animal and Blagojevich didn't work at all. So, right. But in the sense of... Chuck and Rod were similar in that, at the end of the day, they held office to fill a psychological need that they had, and filling that psychological need, that hole that they had, was far more important than the substance of anything. Mike Bloomberg was a little different in that, um, while Mike certainly, his ego liked the validation of, of holding office too, right. um, the point was governing, the point was substance, and he was willing to do things that made him politically more unpopular if he genuinely believed it was the right thing to do. See, this is what I'm wondering. I, I don't. I, I feel like Joe Biden is just this completely unknowable person. I mean, he just he just seems. He, I wouldn't say inauthentic. I don't know if that's the right word, but like the hypothesis you're laying out, like if he thinks about like in these historical terms and like yeah. you know he's going to lose the midterms and he might not run again, all these things. I just don't see him thinking that way. I, I feel like he's in charge and he's you know trying to be a successful president and he's you know taking like any any you know he's 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 only 78 right chuck grassley's running for re-election at 88 like you know is he seeing like the I sunset again, i don't, don't know. i don't know we're both speculating about someone yeah, that are. like I, we don't know i mean I've, I've met joe biden facially you know superficially a handful of times but right you know him uh but look he is pretty old though he did have that four-year break uh, during the Trump years where he wasn't vice president and he wasn't, you know, anything else really. So I, I don't know. But I guess part of me is if if that were his mindset of, like, look, I may be heading towards an unpopular presidency, losing the midterms, not being in a position to run free election successfully, but I know that I will have helped all these people. Right. And that's good enough for me. I, look, I if he's thinking that. that way, I'd like to hear him say it. You know what I mean? Because actually, I think that message might work, right? Because everybody's, those questions like, oh, they're going to get crushed in the midterms. Oh, Trump's poll numbers are here. Or, oh, like, he's going to be too old to run. Like, it's sort of muddying the, the, the whole yeah, thing to me. And I, I, I don't know if he really feels that way or not. But if he does, I, I at least feel like that would be something we can respect. Okay. Well, we have a lot of different things we were going to talk about today. That was just sort of connecting us to last week a little bit. And, 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 um, but there were two articles. So we're going to do a few different things. One, we have two articles, which are both from The Atlantic, that we, that we both read. One's from a couple weeks ago about, um, about a hedge fund that's taken over a lot of, of, of America's newspapers and is you know, just ruthlessly extracting nickels from them, according to this article in any case. And the other is a really interesting, very technical article about the change in, in, uh, in drugs and illegal narcotics in the United States, particularly around meth. Um, 
why don't we start with the drug story? Because I think it's a pretty, I mean, it's by this guy, Sam Quinones, who's a really impressive journalist, has an excellent book called Dreamland. And he, what struck me about the article, so it's sort of about the chemical change um, in, in, in meth and how it's, it's um, way more kind of widely knit into the kind of structure of the American economy. It's not just about these sort of narco kings um, running these big empires. It's it's really like it's it's really much tougher to to, to see it's a small um, business mom and pop stories. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's I mean he talks about this. We've uh, really, all seen those are. Yeah. He describes it as a pulsing ecosystem of independent brokers, truckers, packagers, pilots, shrimp boat captains, mechanics, and tire shop so, owners. So you know what's another way to even sort of expand the value to small and medium-sized businesses? What's that? Legalize it. Legalize it. Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, but I was, Could, you, Because to yeah. me, the, the, I took away something different from the article. Okay, go ahead. Which was that they have figured out how to materially increase the purity right. of meth, right? They, I, I'm not a chemist, but they, there was a compound in there that apparently was not helpful towards getting people high. Right, it was sort of a 50-50 but, split, But right. they didn't really know what, how to identify what to do better or anything else, and they've now somehow figured out how to get rid of the unhelpful chemical and just have the one that fucks you up. Right. So, um, <laughs> Very well said, Bradley. Thank you. I will say, as a parent, and, and Hugh and I, as listeners know, both have uh, girls the same age and talk about our kids a lot in the show, um, I worry more about my kids, or I guess Lyle's still too young, but Abby, if she were to get drugs at a party or something like that, to, to take drugs that were laced with something like fentanyl right, right. Or, or something like that than I am about her... You Taking know, drugs in the first place. Yeah, eating a gummy bear or something like right. that. So I, it seems to me that the point of the article to me was meth has gotten so pure and therefore so dangerous that in a weird way, the best way to make it safe is to legalize it right. and regulate it, right. right? And create a standard by which, by the way, it may be less potent. And maybe maybe if you were to say we're going to legalize a couple of drugs, maybe meth wouldn't be one of them. Right. But, but I still think it gets back to this underlying point of we have a world where, yes, there, if you were to legalize heroin or cocaine or meth or whatever else, you are creating an implicit permission structure for people to try it. That right. is absolutely true. I don't deny that. Right. However, the weight on the other side just keeps getting stronger and stronger to the point to me where it's now undeniable, right? So you have all of the crime that happens uh, in you know both American cities and rural areas because of the drug trade. You have the cartels destroying Mexico and, and, and parts of Latin America. You have a massive criminal justice problem where you have you know millions of, of mainly black and Latino men in jail for things that really shouldn't have been uh, a crime. Um, and then wasting hundreds of billions of dollars a year on the whole law enforcement and incarceration process to do so. You have a corruption problem because for as long as drugs are illegal, uh, there are people who will be paid off to take care of it. And now I would argue you have a safety problem because it's like the equivalent of us saying, you know, this, we're going to make alcohol illegal. And yeah, there may be everyone's drinking Everclear and destroying all their brain cells in three nights. But, you know, so be it. It's nothing we can do about it. Right. right. Uh, and the truth is, like, part of the reason... There is some level of alcohol safety because it is a heavily regulated product. So it seems to me you now add up all six of those things on the plus side to what I just said against the permission structure. And yeah, I get the permission structure part, but it doesn't seem like there's a problem in this country for people who want drugs to get them, right? Yeah, or right. a lack of demand. So right. if the demand already exists, why wouldn't 
you do all the other things. Well, okay, so I have two, two questions to follow up on with that. One is just a, a very basic question, which, okay, so you know a thing or two about government, a thing or two about politics, a thing or two about sort of I regulatory. Like to, I like to think that, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe you don't. <laughs> um, but uh, what, what's, what's the way that this starts to, you know, spread around the country? You know, there is a lot of, a, a lot of built-in resistance for the reasons you cite yeah. um, it, to, to legalizing well, drugs. Well, so it's interesting. So, so clearly cannabis is happening, Right. right, and at some point, sooner or later, I would still predict sooner, it stops being a Schedule One drug. Schedule One is the federal list of drugs that, if you were caught with them, come with the harshest sentences. And is cannabis still it's a Schedule still a Schedule One? One drug with cocaine and heroin and everything else. And who's and the, keeping it that way? Do you have a sense of that? I mean, the DOJ. It seems like there'd be two ways potentially to change that. One would be Congress, right? right. But obviously, hard to pass anything. Two would be the DOJ issuing new rules around and proposals. I don't know technically what the actual legal process would be for changing Schedule 1, but I'm sure there's a way to do it without an act of Congress. Right. Um, but they have to choose to do it. And again, the FDA itself has their own built-in constituency that wants drugs to be illegal because the DEA, I mean, the DOJ, the, the DEA and all these other agencies no, get all their money They marinated themselves right. in yeah. this for years and years yeah. and years. So, so, so I don't know if they have the actual bureaucratic incentive to do so, but cannabis is moving. Uh, psilocybin, psilocybin is is next, and it's much smaller. But you are seeing examples of of decriminalization already happening in, in very liberal places like Ann Arbor or Denver. Um, but but it's happening, right? right? It's on the same path. And the question becomes: Are we on an inexorable path towards that happening with each successive drug, right. or is there a significant difference between, say, psilocybin and cannabis and everything else? Right. I don't know. But if it were me, in order to alleviate all the harms I just outlined before, rather than finding out and letting this evolve over a 30, 40-year period, uh, I would move to just legalize everything right now. Well, there's an interesting article last week also in uh, in the Wall Street Journal about Rhode Island, some experimental programs. It, it, was, it was interesting. There was, I get a quote, uh, there are two two aspects of it, uh, or at least two, uh, a harm reduction experiment that includes sites where users could have drugs tested for potentially fatal doses of fentanyl, um, and then there were also these this idea of supervised consumption sites, which I, I you know guess what that's that's regulation. And no, you know no, it would make sense. Do that for all drugs. Right, but can you imagine a supervised consumption site? Can you imagine being 18 years old and being like, hey, we're going to go do some drugs down by the government place? Yeah, I don't know how well <laughs> that's going to catch on or not, which may mean if the supervised consumption site concept is not a massive viral hit, which it right. seems like it might not be, another way would be if you are legally selling the product and the FDA is regulating what goes right, into the product. you have to provide some services or some medical... Or just there's just not enough fentanyl in the product or no fentanyl in the product, and therefore the risk goes away. Oh, I see what you're, you're saying. Okay. Because right. you're changing the, the compounds of it, right? Now, the, the, in, the, in the article by Sam Canonas, um, he talks about the um, he talks about cigarettes and how they, you know, how they reduce the, um, the prevalence of smoking. And they talked about sort of adding friction to the, to the you know, to the, they, they took vending machines out of, you know, public places and they stopped advertising on television and they did all these things that, that I don't know if actually if there was ever cigarette advertising on television, there probably was. I think there was. Um, but in any case, they really cut all the ways that cigarettes, the availability of cigarettes, they, they increased well, the taxes. By the way, they, you know how to do that? 
it's got to be legal first. Right. But it, what I'm wondering is if you, you know, part of the problem with meth is it's so cheap, right? So if you, if you create a legal type of meth drug and then load it with all these, you know, regulations and safety precautions and all these things, isn't the well, illegal cheaper so, version so still going to be? I think a version of this problem already exists in California around cannabis where uh-huh. um, they've added so many taxes to the process right. that there is something that I've read this, right. uh, but that there's something of a black market that is still flourishing simply because there's enough of a delta between what dealers are selling it for and what dispensers are selling it for. So, yeah, you've got to get the math right so that you don't uh, you don't inadvertently create a black market. But that's just a question of economics. Right. Just a question of economics. Question no of problem. Economics. Um, let's talk about, speaking of economics, let's talk about newspapers. Uh, Alden, this hedge fund that uh, is painted in this pretty, I, I thought it was a pretty great article in The Atlantic about... Um, Not the most flattering light for them. No, but it's funny. It also didn't seem like they would have cared. You know what I mean? Well, because they, they, right, because they, so Alden is a, is a hedge fund that has been buying uh, newspapers, squeezing out every last possible cent. Um, they don't care when they win Pulitzer Prizes. Yeah, just, it's purely, it's, it's widgets. It's widgets, but, right. But in a way, you're right, the article wasn't quite as self-righteous and whiny as most articles about this kind of thing are, <laughs> in the sense that it was like, this is their business model, they truly believe this, and that's what they're doing. And by the way, if you're them, and you truly believe that this is the best way to, to generate profit, and you don't care at all about the underlying product, like, that's fine, right? Um, but it seems to me that what the article was still trying to say, though, even though they were a little less whiny about it, is like, this is terrible, journalism is the most important thing, I'm actually the Atlantic in this case actually was a little less uh, self-aggrandizing and self-righteous and self-pitying than most articles about the demise of journalism. However, let's get to the broader point, which is so for as long as the business of media or newspapers exist and there's someone that believes that they can wring a profit out of it, then hedge funds like Alden will exist and they will do what they do because right, they absolutely right. should. Uh, that, that's how the market works. However, it seems to me that for multiple reasons, what we really want is kind of benevolent kind of billionaires um, buying newspapers, and there are a bunch of examples already, or magazines, and running them not as a for-profit business, but as a community service slash really about influence for themselves, right? Protection from bad press, ability to fuck with your enemies. um, You know, you kind of like, like Jeff Bezos, even though he still takes plenty of shit in the media, I would argue takes a lot less shit than he would have because when the Washington Post became one of the two chief antagonists of Trump, they became an enemy of my enemy thing. And he benefited tremendously from that. And I think there's a lot of respect. I mean, I guess there's no real respect for Jeff Bezos in the journalism community. But the, you know, he has invested in the Washington Post, and the Washington yeah. Post is is excellent. I mean, it, right. it's 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 a it it's night. a terrific alternative to the New York Times. Yeah, look, and people who are in the industry probably say that people at Washington Post are well treated, well paid, well everything. And how do you not, especially contrasted with Alden, if they're your boss, how do you, how do you not respect that? So so the, but you know you have Mark Benioff with Time Magazine or Lorraine Powell Jobs with what does she own the. Atlantic or the Emerson Republic Collective. Or, she owns yeah, the Atlantic she and she Atlantic. owns a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. But, but. And, and so on. But it seems to me, if you're really, really rich, right, newspapers are still things that provide a lot of influence, 
um, a lot of, of power, a lot of credibility, and they're not that expensive, right? What did Bezos pay for the Washington Post? Like, like two hundred million or 200 something. Two hundred million, yeah, yeah. But I so, don't think he could get it for two hundred million today. No, but 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 again, now he's worth two hundred billion, so he could pay the higher price and it wouldn't matter. Point being, if I were a billionaire and I wanted to try to greenwash, whitewash, whatever it was, my reputation. I think rather than, do- than donating hundreds of millions of dollars at a clip to universities to put your name on the building, I think you're far better off. Look, I think that's a good point, but does it? Th- that doesn't really address the point that the articles uh, like. Sure, it does. Well, it sort of does, but but the, but Ch- change the but ownership a, structure. But an incentive, uh, a structure that like enables billionaires to run them as nonprofits doesn't. It doesn't feel that vital to me, does it? It, it feels like. No, a, but but look at the history of, of media in this country. It was always Hearst's and other wealthy families who basically were, you know, maybe making. Money Money on it, maybe not. But I think well, but a lot of these families made their money on newspapers. I mean, yeah, they, they, but, they weren't just billionaires who well, came along. In the way that people now make their money on streaming or right. you know, like or social media, right? Newspapers were the version of that in their day. But at the same time, when when you own a newspaper, even back then, you were combining the benefits of influence with, I guess, the potential to make money. And I guess here my point is, I don't know that there's that much potential to make money because it doesn't sound like all of them is really like crushing it anyway by squeezing right. you know money off of the daily news healthcare plan but <laughs> it would seem to me that now that you have this incredible outsized wealth of people who are worth tens of billions of dollars right why not purchase this even if you don't give a shit about the well-being of the world at all simply as a prophylactic measure to protect your own reputation right right so I, I, we're going to move on from newspapers in one second but i want to i want to uh, reference what i consider the big journalistic fail of the story which is not on the part of the the, the writer of the story um but uh but a, a bunch of the reporters who work at some of the alden papers who uh he he pulled to find out the question that he should put um, to the guy Freeman uh, Freeman Heath is that his name the, the one of the one of the two partners in Alden um, so so what's the question so you got a chance to like to ask the devil as you see him anyway the, right. the, the most important question and this is the one they came up with they, that they cited what recent story from your newspaper have yeah, you especially stupid. appreciated right and I mean I, how pathetic well, is it's that well just to show that they don't really read the thing we know that they don't right yeah. I mean I, I think we I think you just asked them the very basic question which is do you view this as anything other than a financial vehicle for profits? And by the way, I think their answer would be no. And right. I think that that would be fine in the sense of, okay, that's who and what we're dealing with here. If you want a different outcome, you're going to need buyers with different incentives than purely profit motive. Right. Okay. It's well said. Um, I want to run a – I read a, 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 good, uh, a good little piece on Facebook this morning by Cory Doctorow, and I, I wanted to read a, uh, a little piece of it. Yeah. Just get your reaction. So – he writes, if we don't make big tech weak, we'll never bring them to heel. Giant companies can extract monopoly rents, huge profits, and cartels can agree on how to spend those profits to subvert regulation. We need to fix the internet, not the tech giants. The problem just isn't that Zuck, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, is really bad at being the unelected Pope Emperor of the digital lives of three billion people. It's that the job of Pope Emperor of three billion people should be abolished. Yeah, look, I don't, I don't disagree. I mean, I've, I've talked about this a lot on this podcast. I, I would repeal Section 230, which would then make the platforms legally liable for the content posted on it. I would pass a, a national privacy framework. What does, to, that, what does that do then to Facebook? Does it screw the kind of like scale issue for them? They have what, to be a lot more careful. They about have to be, you know, it has to make the, right now for all of them, all of their saying, oh, we wish our platform weren't so toxic or whatever it is. They don't mean that because the more toxic it is, the more clicks they get. The more clicks they get, the more money they make. There's a a direct relationship between toxicity and profit, right? 
if all of a sudden you or I could sue Facebook for for uh, them being legally responsible for what's print for what's put put on there about us, they're going to have to be a lot more careful because they're not going to want to get sued all the time, right. right? And so, in a weird way, a process of litigation over time by good plaintiffs' lawyers, I think, will actually do more to shape responsible stewardship by a Facebook or a Twitter um, than if we tried to just you know, have a government regulate every tweet or every post. But if we eliminate Section 230 and we pass some U.S. version of GDPR, which is the European privacy framework, and we were to be more aggressive on antitrust, so that may mean Facebook becomes Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook as separate companies, maybe splitting up AWS from Amazon, things like that. Um, I think all of that would help to ensure a far more competitive marketplace. Yeah, I, I think... There's a tremendous risk because keep in mind, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Apple—they're not even big tech. They're just the Standard Oil or the Ma Bell of their day, right? They're just this giant, giant monopoly that behaves like a monopoly, and we'll use that to crush innovation. Right. And we have to prevent that. Right. Um, so, uh, God, Bradley just cracked his knuckles so loudly it probably got picked up by the mic. We're not going to cut it if it did. <laughs> um, so, so one of the reasons that that uh, that uh, Mark Zuckerberg is like unlikely to, to to sit quietly while his company is broken up is that apparently you know they're changing the name of Facebook yes. uh, as the corporate name anyway, and the reason I gather is that they consider themselves they want to they want to direct the major aim of the company towards the metaverse, building yeah, that makes the metaverse. Sense. I mean, it, it does ma- it? Sure. So if you're them, you have to assume that everything that I just said a second ago will probably eventually happen. Right. Which means the revenue model of advertising, which is 100% of how Facebook is makes their money, right, or 90-something percent of it, um, will be clipped back in some way. You will have the ability to – you will not be able to, to post stuff that's as, as salacious and appealing. You will have more restrictions as to how you monetize people's data, uh, all of that, right? right. So they got to make it up somewhere, right? right? That's why Libra, although it never got off the ground, pay, pay, Facebook's kind of payment – well, they system. did just relaunch some aspect of Libra. They renamed that too. I can't remember what they yeah, called it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like yeah, we, we, we've had some interaction with it on the oh, consulting yeah. side. Um, so, um, yeah, but ultimately, if you're Facebook, what you're saying is, I'm going to have less money from my traditional sources of revenue. However, um, the metaverse is really just a saying, okay, how do we connect all the different ways that people engage online? So Facebook owns Oculus, for example. Right. Lyle has an Oculus, right? And he is God, I feel like this, we've been hearing about Oculus forever. And it, it's just it's like, a pretty cool product. He's off in this kind like of it? VR. I mean, I've, I've, a couple of times I've like put it on to see what he's talking about. But no, I don't like it. But like <laughs> he likes it. Um, and, um, and the... Uh, Oculus effectively is an immersive AR, VR device, right? Um, The notion that the world will get more and more and more immersive online and ultimately people will spend even more time and even more money seeking experiences and entertainment online to me is extremely likely. And what Facebook is really saying is that's the future of where we make up the difference when eventually regulation takes um, some of the advertising dollars away from us. Okay, we're going to do something a little different than we've done. Uh, Bradley and I have a secret book project. We can say that on the podcast, right? Except it's not secret anymore now, but yeah. Well, but it's secret that we don't not say exactly what it is. Because we're not sure. But yeah, because yeah. we're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm going to tell you soon. Yeah. Um, so so one of the things I asked Bradley over text, this is this is one of the, the um, benefits of having Bradley in your life, is that you can ask him sort of crazy things, and he actually responds and answers them, like often like immediately. 
Um, well, I, th I think that one came in the middle of a boring meeting, so I think I was, oh, really? I was okay. grateful to have the distraction. All right, so so I just asked Bradley. I was like, I want I want you to 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 list the ten most fascinating political figures of your adult life. I think is the way I phrased it. Yeah. So. Um, uh, now this was this was so he gave me a list. Now Bradley cheated because he gave me a list of seventeen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the list. I'm going to stop at ten, okay. and then I'm going to mention the other ones. Right. But but I'm going to I'm going to just say because part of the part of the point of the exercise was not just like oh to go study the issue and like you know like come back with like some sacrosanct you know like canon, but just to like like you know off the top of your head yeah. like if you just think right now. So the 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 top ten. Trump, Putin, Obama, AOC, Boris Johnson, Lee Atwater, Margaret Thatcher, Berlusconi, Rob Ford, Rob Ford, um, and Rudy Giuliani. Um, I, I tend to have a bias towards city government and all that, so I'm, I'm going to always be a little more mayor heavy on these lists. Than most but people. Canadian mayors? The dude was like literally smoking crack while in office, and yet at the same time was wildly popular, effective, and his brother now has the job, or it's like some similar job in Canada. I love that, by the way. So the, the next seven includes another crack-smoking mayor. So um, I, I love the idea that uh, that that crack mayors like it's Bradley's Marion Barry, his wheelhouse. So he's the next a fascinating seven. guy. He came I, back I, from jail and went back into office. I, I want to tell you about something about Marion Barry in a second, but I agree. I, I I'm I'm not anti Marion Barry. Um, the next seven, Harold Washington, Marion Barry, Ben Barnes, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, Hugo Chavez, the Kirshners, which at first I looked at that and I was like, he must mean the Kushners. And no. I was like, nope, he means the Kirshners because he's like a very worldly guy who thinks about politics in, in Argentina. Um, and last but maybe least, the Clintons. Um, they make the yeah, list. Yeah, I mean, you, I felt like they belonged on there, but I didn't really want to put them on there. I don't, I'm so tired. Like, I didn't watch the... Did the you watch Michael, that mini series no. about Monica Lewinsky? Like, oh, my God. I, I don't want more Clintons in my life. I know. And, and also, you're just like, what's the... What's the mystery about that that I feel like I didn't understand? it? I mean, I, I guess there's a corrective, right? The whole world just shit all over um, Monica Lewinsky, and that was stupid and unfair, and, like, it deserves to be sort of rectified did, in some did way. Did that miniseries do well? Do we know? It's impossible to say what does well at all anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's on Netflix, right? Oh, wait, was it on Netflix? It was It was Ryan Murphy, but I, he, he still does some... I think it was on FX, Hulu, FX, Hulu. Anyway, he, not only did I not watch it, I don't think anyone has ever once mentioned it to me. Yeah, no one Me mentioned Megan it. might have watched it. That was about well, the it. thing is, it got a lot of coverage, but like, yeah, I agree with it. It just didn't. It just didn't connect. Yeah. So, okay, on this list, I'm going to just ask you, because I mean, most of them are like. So we talked about Rob Ford. We know why he's on there. Um, there's one person who's, I guess, sort of closer to your line of the business. Because one of the things I asked, I said it's not elected officials. It's like political figures. Yeah. So you have Lee Atwater there. Yeah. What, now, Lee Atwater's kind of a forgotten guy. I read a I read a biography of him. I was really excited about it. I actually found it like, maybe it just wasn't that good a book. But it was not, he just seemed like an asshole. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I'm, I'm not, look, I've never met Lee Atwater. But I'm well, not sure. he's his, dead, so you never meet him. Right. But yeah. I'm not sure if his descendants would, would disagree with that. No, he no. He was famous I, for being an asshole. And also at his funeral, I mean, he was like an incredible philanderer, too. Like, I mean, it, he just was like, he just scored high in all asshole categories. <laughs> um, but tell me about, besides being an asshole, was there something about Lee Atwater that you... Yeah, I mean, he kind of invented modern political negative campaign. Now, look, on one hand, it's existed forever. For as long as there's been any type of election in any form, including probably back in the 
you know, Greeks and the Roman days and everything else, there's obviously negative campaigning. But Atwater is famous for, for Willie Horton, or for the Willie Horton ad, right? Yeah. He's the guy. It's just a frightening ad. I've seen it recently. I've watched it. And it's like, it's a dark, mean, nasty piece of work. And it, it worked, right? Yeah. It, it, you know, basically kept Dukakis out of office. Now, whether or not Dukakis would have been a great president, I don't, I don't you never hear people say, if only Dukakis had won in 88. <laughs> but The big counterfactual, yeah. America, if yeah, Dukakis what had if. won. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, that was, you know, a pretty close election because George H.W. Bush was a pretty weak politician. Not a not pretty, a decent president, but not nearly as talented as his son. Um, and Lee Atwater was able to come up with an ad that was so brutal, so devastating, so racist, so everything... Um, that it worked, and uh, and and Bush won, and so to me, in some ways, at least Atwater is the godfather of sort of the current polarization and dysfunction of American politics. I understand that you could say that the, the Daisy ad that LBJ did against Goldwater maybe was sort of the beginning of really effective negative TV campaigning, and that right. was '64, right? Right. Um, so that was a while before, but nonetheless. In terms of taking sort of the nastiness to a new height where it becomes so normalized, um, in fact, you could argue that Atwater in many ways laid the groundwork for Trump, that he normalized behavior to a point where Trump could actually run, behave that way, and win because of it. And what's funny, too, is he was working on behalf of, of George W. Bush, who was like a, uh, a Herbert Walker Bush, sorry, George H.W. Bush, who was considered one of the more gentlemanly, you know... Yeah, of- although I would say... He was clearly a very bright man, right? No one's ever said George H.W. Bush was dumb, which means he knew exactly what Atwater was doing, and he let him do it. Oh, and he was very close to him, too, so it was, yeah. it was so not— So, like, yeah. you know, yes, but— Right. No, no, I think it is, a, it is a big yes, but I think that's exactly what it is. So of these guys, should, should someone do a really good Lee Atwater movie, or does that not— uh, I don't think people— well, you made a, a you made a political movie. Like, yeah. like people don't want to watch them by and large, right? Well, they do and they don't. I guess people want to make them. Do people want to watch them? I mean, they Washington just never, never, you know, never really feels interesting in a movie context. It just it just. Defeats. But you had in Detroit, you had like a really interesting topic and all that, and it still didn't really play with the public. No, it didn't. But I think the I think we're talking about a movie that I was the executive producer of in 2017 called Detroit. Um, Directed by Catherine Bigelow, written by Mark Bowl. Great movie. Um, was not. I tried to get Bradley to help us with. Uh, I volunteered, man. No, Bradley didn't did. Take in fact. my help. One of the coolest documents I have in my possession is a list of of Bradley's movie marketing ideas, which would literally shock and outrage every single movie marketing person in Hollywood. Um, That's but, why they were good ideas. Yeah, they probably would have been pretty effective if we tried them. So, so uh, anybody on this list that you would like to see a movie? I know that that, that uh, the political movies don't sell, but I guess Rob Ford, someone was probably doing that. Or maybe yeah, it's like a, did. Or a Lifetime movie or something like that. The lifetime? People, I don't know. Not <laughs> Lifetime. Like the people who want to like con- the people who oppose uh, what I said earlier about legalization of drugs could be right. like a cautionary Har- tale. A cautionary tale. Or you know the Rob, Rob Ford and Marion Barry story. Look, I mean Putin's pretty fucking fascinating. Right. Yeah. I mean, evil, uh, very well, maybe the richest man in the world, right? Oh, very well. I mean, he almost certainly is, right? right. I mean, he, but I, yeah, and just what he's stolen. Yeah. So he also, know, he controls a country. Right. I mean, he has an army. Like, wh- right. who's richer His than that? His problem is, I imagine the minute he stops controlling the country, they're going to kill him. Well, he knows that. Yeah, so yeah. he's just going to try to hang around until. Well, that's, that's how in, in Russia you pick your successors, just which one is least likely to kill you. That's the whole. That's the whole gamble. That's the whole way you do it. Yeah, I've heard. So, uh, so they say. Um, yeah. So that would be, and, and you know, in some ways, while obviously a Trump movie could be fascinating, I just 
No, it, don't want to. Do no, it. no, I don't, I don't think it'd be it. fascinating. How would yeah. someone play Donald Trump? It's impossible. I mean, you, you can make a mockery of him, but like, how would you? That's oh. the problem. No, no matter how much of a mockery you made, it would still fall short of the real life version. Yeah, exactly. He mocks himself so relentlessly. Okay, we're going to talk. I've still not watched any of the new seasons of uh, Succession. Yeah. Um, you have. You framed a question there that I don't agree with at all. Okay. Um, either way of it, but I'm going to read it. Um, I mean, it's not it's not like a serious disagreement, but um, <laughs> that's when Hugo left the podcast. Right. I got thrown out of Bradley's office. Yeah. So you wrote the question. Do you think we like shows like Succession because they allow us to feel morally superior, which we talked a little bit about last week? Or is it because we internalize the conflict they're having between wanting stuff and wanting to be good? And it's fascinating. Yeah, now, I think you, I think I know where you're going with that. You think the latter or no or both. Both, I think. I oh, mean, because really? I, I, I was thinking about this. I like reading books about kind of contemporary Manhattan or L.A. or whatever it is, but especially here, TV shows, movies. And I think the reason that I like all of it, and I, th- I said this the other week, is, I, one, because by definition, to make it an interesting book, movie, TV show, whatever it is, there has to be a lot of drama, which means people have to do bad shit, which means that I could then feel morally superior to okay, them. Right. Number White Lotus, another good example, right? Right. Um, example number, and, and then but but then number two would be. And I, was, I was thinking this last night when I was watching Succession um, and kind of all the real estate porn in it, right? You know, in these incredible places, and I was like, I wonder if really what's sort of capturing me is the on one hand, I mean. I, I have some money and some power, but nothing like the the Roy family, right? right? So, like, on one hand, maybe that's exactly what I would like to have, and I'd be willing to trade uh, my moral core for that. Um, but that becomes an interesting question, which is, like, you know they're terrible people. You know they have unlimited amounts of influence and power and money. Mm-hmm. Would you take that deal? And I think we all like to say, no, I would never do that, but I think most of us probably would. Well... I guess the I disagree with that in the sense that you kind of are in the position to do something like that, and you haven't. I mean, you know... I don't know. Did you read the New York Times in May? They said I had. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I mean, they, the... I mean, a lot of the choices you've made, the family you have, the wife you have, I mean, you know, you, you've, you've definitely made a commitment to not being a total asshole all the time, despite what the New York Times says. Yes. Um, but also not taking the cheap, easy stuff. You know, it, um, I mean, we, we've talked about the, the mayoral campaign. You, you took a, a, a big risk on a candidate you believed in. Not, it, you know, I mean, he, his, his poll numbers were good at the beginning, but you knew those were sort of not, not, going, to, not going to hold up over the course of the yeah, campaign. I, I thought he was the, the best equipped person to for New York City, New York and, City. and 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 people right people sure. impugned all the, all sorts of motives of that. But that was, I mean, I was there when when you know when you were thinking about doing it, and and it wasn't like, oh, this is how I get my peace. This isn't like how no, I get my penthouse apartment. This isn't yeah. how I get my um, sure. Oh, okay, fine. But but nonetheless, fundamentally, if, if you go back to it, the. I always assumed that the reason why I liked this stuff was because I could say to myself, yeah, I'm not as bad as those assholes. But then last night, you know, there was something in the apartment or whatever it is, and I think it's, you know, um, and I was like, oh, I wonder if that's not really what it is. It's more that I kind of want to debate with myself whether or not I would do the things that they're doing in return for the things that they have. And it's interesting, you don't watch the morning show. I got a lot of catching up today, and it's not that good. I can't watch so you TV shows really... about TV shows. Yeah, yeah, so I can't no, no, do no it. understood. And, and in, in a way, it's the same because it's about rich, powerful people in Manhattan. Right. However, 
they are like whiny and self-absorbed in like a small way. Right. And the Roy family are whiny. Not whiny. They're just self-absorbed. In oh, a, so you like the empire building aspect I of think succession. So. Yeah, I right. think, you know, yeah. Like like making your co-host look like well, shit so, on the set is sort, like. Well, it's sort of like I you know, segue into like I finished the Jonathan Franzen book this weekend. Okay. And just threw that in there. Just to, I, I, was no, that 400 pages? It was like 600. 600. But here's the point. I consistently read his books. And when I finish them every time, I ask myself, why did I read that? Um, and I they never, feel a little gross, right? Don't they? Well, it's not just they're gross. It's about like average people whining with average problems, making a big deal about it. And it's sort of like maybe that's sort of really the great chronicler of American society and life. But it's like about like it's not always about middle class people in suburbs who are struggling in the ways a human being struggle. Right. right, and it was sort of like, yeah. At the end of the day, when I finished, I'm like, why did I just spend 600 pages reading this thing? Who cares? Um, and I, the but morning show is like the why Jonathan Franzen of, of Apple just, TV just because he's like, a good writer. He's a good writer. Okay. Yeah, he's a good writer. Although I would say by page 450, I wished I had bailed. Right. And I forced myself through the last 150 pages. Right. Which normally I don't do. Like the Colson Whitehead book, which I thought would be like the book of the year. You didn't enjoy that. I read 80 pages and stopped. Really? I didn't think it was bad. It never. It's literally sitting on my night table, at the top of the stack. It's and you a pick very up other colorful, attracted color. It never calls to me. Really, to read it. Never, never calls to you. It doesn't. <laughs> All right. One last thing. You you also said you watched the French Dispatch. Oh uh, yeah. If you like Wes Anderson, Anderson movies, you will like the French Dispatch. Um, Lyle was my date for the movie, so there's. Uh, you took Lyle to the French Dispatch. Yeah, he, he was, must have been super bummed. He was. Um, <laughs> well, here's the thing. So. Alamo, do you know the Alamo Draft House movie? Yeah, chain? sure, yeah. Of right. So it's a big thing. It's from Austin. Right. And so we've been going to it for the whole for the last the whole one life. In Brooklyn? No, the ones in Austin, because we're in oh, Austin okay. a couple times a year to see right. Harper's family, right? So like Lyle, my kids are very like they and because it's like a non-New York thing, they feel like they're special because they know about it, right? Right, right. So they opened one up this week in Lower Manhattan. Oh, is it Lower Manhattan? Where is it? There was one in Brooklyn, maybe there still is, but this one's on Liberty. Off of Wall or some William, like, like right oh, by the seaport, kind of, or a little before the sea, a little south of the seaport. Okay. Um, so we went, and I, and I got Lyle to go because it was just me and him this weekend, and because it was the Alamo. So I kind of used that as as the bait. Um, I enjoyed the movie. It was very Wes Anderson ish. I wouldn't say it's a top five Wes Anderson movie, but it was still, you know, I just enjoy that. Right. Lyle was extremely bored. Yeah, I could see. I that. would not take your twelve year old to it, but yeah. if you liked. But you got him like Steve a huge Steve or the Tenenbaums or... Yeah, he did have... He had a lot of junk food. Uh, he had a milkshake. He had popcorn. He had chicken tenders. So f- from that standpoint, he, he was okay. Um, but anyway, if you like Wes Anderson movies, you'll probably like There you go. Page. We're leading on an upbeat recommendation, movie recommendation from Bradley Tusk. All right, Bradley. Uh, we'll see you next week. See you Thursday.